You can save a lot of time and resources not building things that people don't want and focusing your energy on things that people do want. You're building a product that solves a problem for them or making them feel good. Oftentimes, if someone has an idea, they'll build out the product first and then test to see if the users want the product. We encourage people to do things like smoke testing, where you just put up a landing page. I think founders probably just lose sight of that, that investors are there to help. Welcome to Venture Confidential, a series of conversations with top minds in venture capital. I'm your host, Peter Chapman. Today, I'm joined by Tammy Camp at NFX, In this podcast, we talk about early mistakes that marketers make, what she learned about the LPVC relationship, and emerging blockchain technologies. As always, if you're interested in learning more about Heavybit or being a guest on this show, email me at vc at heavybit.com. Tammy, welcome to Venture Confidential. Thanks for having me, Peter. Such a pleasure. It's a sweltering hot day here in San Francisco. You're actually my first Venture Confidential guests to go the beer instead of the coffee route. What can I say? I must be more fun than all of you. The rest <laughs> you know, of the so people. So far, so good. Here, like, cheers. Here. <laughs> so, I'd love to start with you. I know you, you got your start doing growth marketing before wading into venture. That's right. Tell me about that. What were the early years of Tammy's career like? Right. So, I started back in two thousand and one. When I was a senior in college, I was playing the affiliate marketing game. I met a person in Europe and he was making like a million dollars a month net from affiliate marketing. This is like the wild, wild west days of the internet. And he was an advertiser for Nextcard. Do you remember that next card, the internet's credit card? It was all over Yahoo when Yahoo used to be like the number one search engine. Well, that was the card. And, you know, I picked his brain and I was like, please show me what you're doing. And he did. And so um, I started doing affiliate marketing. And what I would do is buy traffic for companies like Expedia and Priceline and eBay when they were starting out in uh, Europe. So I would buy traffic in US dollars but in the UK market but get paid out in pounds. So I was effectively making commissions on sales and then playing the geo arbitrage game on ads. And that's kind of how I got started in my career. Interesting. I like this early arbitrage experience. We're going to come back to that <laughs> when we talk about modern currency exploits. That's right. What got you into venture? Well, let's see. I was head of growth at Stellar, mm-hmm. a, a protocol nonprofit started by Jed McCaleb, which was the founder of Ripple and also Mt. Gox and eDonkey. And they were doing some rewrites of the protocol at the time. And I had a girlfriend reach out to me who's also an inventor, Stephanie Palmieri. She reached out to me telling me about this opportunity at 500. You know, the 500 opportunity about them needing more people that had like this distribution background. And I jumped on it. And so I spent two years at 500 startups as a partner investing in startups, but also doing their growth marketing curriculum for the Silicon Valley accelerators, which would happen four times a year. So once quarterly, twice in the San Francisco offices and twice in the Silicon Valley offices. You put together this thing called. Marketing boot camp. 
It was Marketing Hell Week. Marketing Hell Week, sorry. <laughs> what happens in Marketing Hell Week? It's exactly what it sounds like. You know, it's a crash course in startup marketing. So it's just five days of packed growth curriculum. So on day one, you would start out with uh, how to think about your growth strategy and how to like pull out the correct KPIs for your business, how to even define your funnel. On day two, it would be old school acquisition. So <laughs> SEO, content marketing, email, all the things that work. Day three would be new school acquisition, which is all the new channels, right? So it would be like Pinterest and YouTube and Instagram. And then day four would be some of the newer technologies as well. So like remarketing, how to build your sales team. So we would move into more of the B2B sector, um, how to get leads, how to scrape the internets for all the information that you need to grow. And then day five would be covering how to put that to work and how to scale that and how to build a growth team. Now at 500, you're working with pretty early stage startups. Yes. You know, at Heavybit, we're sort of blessed in that while we've got a wide range of products, a lot of the go-to markets are fairly analogous. We're all going to market through developers. And I imagine that when you're talking to a company at that stage, just figuring out which channels to explore is a task in and of itself. How do you determine where to start when you're building a marketing program? Well, the first place to start is kind of just framework and mindset. So you just want to go through rapid experiments quickly. So we recommended going through 30 experiments per week. Yeah, that rapid. And uh, to just go down the list and start trying things because everybody's business, even in the developer world, everybody's business is unique. Everyone has a segmented audience in for instance, the developer world, and different channels, sub-channels are going to work for different people, and you got to get through those channels, channel being one of them, but then also making sure that you have the proper infrastructure set up. So a lot of these companies, and I'm sure for the heavy bit developer audience too, is that just email, simple emails, simple like drip campaigns, when you want to put them through a 30-day trip campaign um, to educate your users, to have evergreen content that educate your users, that's super valuable. Every business needs that, no matter if you're B2B, if you're a consumer, if you're enterprise, everybody needs that. Everybody has, has to make sure that just that baseline infrastructure is in place. I, well, you're I, smiling. I'm smiling because I... I sign up for tons of products mm -hmm. just to see what that initial experience is like. And more often than not, I sort of wince at the onboarding flow. Why do so many companies get this wrong? You know, I think it's because they're scared. You know, most entrepreneurs or founders come to me and they're like, oh, what happens if I piss people off? Well, then you don't need to be in business because guess what? You're going to have to. Piss people off. Like, you know, when we tell people, like, if you're, not, if, what happens if I'm emailing them too much? Well, the only way to find that out is if there is a spike in unsubscribes. You just have to be okay with, hey, there's going to be a baseline metric for unsubscribes. So, you know, every email that you send out, you might have like a one to 2% unsubscribe rate. But if you increase the frequency and it goes up to like five to seven percent or five and above, then you know you've pissed somebody off. So you can scale it back down. But you gotta at least kind of piss somebody off a little bit 
just to know like what frequency or velocity they want to be engaged with. Sure. Yeah, you got to find that edge. What are some other common mistakes that you see early stage companies making in marketing? Right. So oftentimes if someone has an idea, they'll build out the product first and then test to see if the users want the product. We encourage people to do things like smoke testing where you kind of just put up a landing page and mm. pretend like you have the product but you don't really and see if people will even click on it or engage with it in some way to see if there's interest sure. in at all. So yeah, kind of just building something, a facade of something first and seeing if there's an engagement with it before actually building the product because you can save a lot of time and resources not building things that people don't want and, and focusing your energy on things that people do want. I want to go back to the transition to 500. I've talked to a bunch of people about this sort of pivotal moment in their career where they stop being an operator and they start being more of a coach, mentor, investor. Yeah. What was that like for you? It was great. It was a great experience being at 500 because they had such a broad portfolio in in different regions. You know, they're probably the largest venture capital firm globally um, in terms of like uh, investment reach because they have you know people on the ground and in the Middle East and Asia and Korea and Vietnam and Europe. You know, just they're global. So it was really interesting because I got to see. What made a good founder and what didn't. And as an operator, you kind of self reflect and you're like, wow, yeah, I, I could have done that better. <laughs> or, yeah, I was okay at that. That was an invaluable experience. What makes a good founder? It really depends on your role. So if you're a CEO, then probably focusing more on investor relations. I guess a traditional CEO would be investor relations is like 60% of your time and then 40% is leading the team. Mm -hmm. I guess I didn't see that before going in there, right? Always keeping your investors updated mm. um, so they can help because they're, they're invested in you so they can help you. Mm -hmm. And I think founders probably just lose sight of that, that investors are there to help. Um, so if you're a developer, like CTO, so that's like a completely different thing, right? So just like being, I guess at different stages you're a different, you need to be a different role. So if it's, you're just like a one, you have one co-founder that's a technical person and one CEO, then you're kind of like doing everything. But a good founder that is technical, he can't be tied up solely on coding the product, he actually needs to be recruiting. Like that's his job, just Go get more engineers. Yeah, I've seen that one, that mistake as well. Uh, you know, people like the 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 technical founder being too you know focused on the product instead of trying to build a team. So we certainly see that here. You know, at Heavybit, we have a lot of very technical co-founders, mm -hmm. and their roles change quite a bit as their companies grow. They have to move away from the code base and start worrying more about investor relations and recruiting and general management and strategy. And it's often a challenge for them because coding is something that's very comfortable to them. Uh, they can sort of solve immediate, tractable problems. What are some ways that you get founders to swim outside their comfort zones and start dealing with the bigger 
harder problems that they're less familiar with. I guess just coaching them, educating them, right? Giving them the information that they need to be able to execute what they need to outside of their comfort zone. And then also what works is comparing them as well. So having them all together, probably how it is here at Heavybit, you know, you can compare each other in a cohort and say, hey, like at this stage, you should be at this size. And why don't you ask your friend over there how they did it? You know, so um, a, a lot of that peer pressure. Sure. At 500, I mean, it's such a big program. How do you allow smaller communities to form? How do you get that benchmarking to happen? Well, at, at 500, as of late, they have vertical focused programs. So there's a B2B focused program, there's a FinTech focused program, there's a consumer focused program. So they would go into those verticalized cohorts. It worked. It's good. It's kind of like how you're verticalized here. Developer world. So far so good. What are you like as a coach? I actually love, you know, just getting in and getting my hands dirty and most often ripping out analytics tracking code mm-hmm. and re-instrumenting it and getting that aha moment from the founders like, oh my God, great. Like we grew 30% since the last time we've seen you. It's great. 30% week over week. I mean, awesome. or, or month over month, or 20%, you know, like whatever that metric is for your company. Like when they come back and they say that, oh, I've improved from the previous week, that's fantastic. Sure. Is there sort of a standard Tammy tool chain or? Oh, yeah. What's in the box? <laughs> oh, yeah. Got loads of templates and frameworks. There's like a growth experiment framework. Which is that pipeline of thirty experiments that you should do? Like, if you have what kind? Like, what do you need to do? Like, mm. what are the outcomes? How how much did it move the needle via percentage points? That's one framework. Another one would be just a content and email marketing formula framework. So, like, when you're communicating with people, there's eight psychological triggers that you can trigger to engage with your audience and making sure that. You pick one of them in the body of your uh, content and make sure that you have a, a call to action at the end of your content and an attention-grabbing headline. All of this is in a template. <laughs> How can our listeners steal these frameworks? It's actually public at startupmarketing.tamicamp.com. Awesome, awesome. We'll post a link to that. So I want to move forward in time a little bit. You spend two years at 500. That's right. You build Marketing Hell Week, you invest in a bunch of companies, you coach a lot of folks, and at some point, you jump to NFX. That's right. I had a baby. You had a baby, yeah, congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. Left out that critical life moment. Well, you know, sometimes when you have like these big life events, you, you know, a lot of change comes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a good time to... Change, right? You're changing your whole life. You might as well just throw your career in there with it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so the baby happened. The baby, you took some time off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. reasonably. Yeah. Okay. And then when you, when you started working again, you found yourself over at NFX. That's right. Why NFX? Because they're amazing. <laughs> so I hosted a lot of people at Marketing Hill Week. And one of, I've been doing this for a long time. So, 
I had invited James Courier to one of our Marketing Hell Weeks, and he did a fireside chat with Dave McClure. Um, you could actually find this fireside chat on YouTube. You should watch it. It's like it's it's kind of it was mind blowing for me at the time, and they were having a discussion. I was just like, "Wow, this guy is on a whole nother level." And I was thinking to myself, I was like, "Ah, oh, like I would really like to work with that guy one day because he really knows his shit." And so I made a list of people that who I wanted to work with after I had my baby, and it was only a few people. And I reached out to him, and he's just like, "Come on." I was like, okay, here I come. <laughs> what was so inspiring? What did you like about him? He had really thought through network effects. So, you know, at 500, it was very much um, the R, A A R R R metric. So it's acquisition, <laughs> activation, referral, retention, and revenue. So, those are all the growth metrics that kind of measure a company's success in terms of growth, right? And, and James, he came in and he was talking about network effects, which was, my opinion, just another layer deeper into growth. So just talking about, for example, you know, closing loops. So for example, we'll take Instagram. In the early days, to form a habit, you actually have to have like, what is it? Serotonin. Is it serotonin? It's serotonin or dopamine. Oh, it's dopamine. Yeah. <laughs> it's dopamine. So if you're a user on Instagram and you had somebody follow you, you would get an email. And then every time you would follow or comment on another person, you would get a notification about them. So it was just a closed loop of virality, mm. right? You know, once you have that loop closed, it's kind of infinite. It's infinite in the amount of times that a user will engage with your product. And so building those into your product is quite fascinating because it actually brings your level deeper into growth because that's what you want to achieve. You want to achieve habits, right? So thinking about those network effects and building them into your product so you can have your user you know, feel good about them because that's what it is. Like you're you're building a product that solves a problem for them or making them feel good. Like that's the whole point, right? <laughs> and just kind of elevating that. Now, my understanding of NFX is that you're not just looking for network effects; you're looking for multi-dimensional networks. You were saying marketplaces. I said marketplaces. Do you use the word marketplace? We do. There's like multiple marketplaces. That that that's that's actually one one type of network effect as a marketplace. So they did an analysis of all of the types of companies that had network effects in their business in terms of technology, and over sixty percent of them had them on the Nasdaq. So if you think of Google, right, they're a huge company, and what drives their business is the ad network. Everybody has. Google AdWords or Google AdSense, you know, embedded in their sites. And so the search function is their product, but the ad network is how they generate most of their revenue. So that is a network, an example of a network effects. If you think of like Uber, that's the marketplace that you were talking about earlier. You know, there's a closed loop. So if somebody's requesting a ride, the driver accepts and they go along and then it closes the loop. So I think of 
marketplaces as being sort of a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, they can be very sticky, but on the other hand, you get these difficult startup costs. Right? There's a, there can be a little bit of a catch-22 as you try to get both, both mm-hmm. parties involved. It depends on what vertical you're in, where it depends on like you want to do supply side first or demand side first. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, oh, what shoe should I focus on first? Yeah. Demand or supply? I actually probably if you focus on the demand side, like the supply side will fill, right? Because people want to make money, right? People got bills to pay, you know. <laughs> what are some uh, What are some sort of classic NFX investments that demonstrate the sort of network effect? You look well, for. I will, I will. I'll speak to because the fund is so new. I'll speak to partners, angel investments. So mm-hmm. it would be Lyft, uh, DoorDash, Poshmark. Cool. What do you love about these companies? I think I love that they're actually bringing value to both. Well, in these particular companies, they're actually giving value to both the seller and then the user, giving people jobs. I think that's very important in today's. Political climate. Yeah, totally. It's a topic of concern, right? Yes. Yeah. Why our current president got elected, right? Because he promised them jobs. Uh, did your role change when you moved from 500 to NFX? It did. It did. So I'm focused more on not so much on the entrepreneur side as of yet. I'm just really focused on the LP fundraise at the moment and then doing some, a small amount of crypto related. Investing and in research for the team. Cool. I'd love to hear about both of those. You guys are raising a fund. That's right. Are you willing to give us some details about I what you're raising? I don't know if I can. Yeah, that's fine. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's private stuff. I know. Um, great. Everybody just wants to to know more about the I, ICO market, anyways. Right, right. I do want. I do want to know more about the ICO market. I, you know, I'm interested in LP stuff because it can be such a sort of mysterious relationship. I think, especially for folks that are beginning their career in venture, it's oh, the secondary layer that's totally foreign to folks. Okay. Right? Like, who I can are actually LPs? talk about that. I actually help at 500 with their process as well. Yeah. So okay. So tell me a little bit about that. Um, Maybe you actually for our listeners, you just start by saying like what what an LP is and how they fit into the venture ecosystem. Okay, an LP is a person that gives money to the venture fund or invests in the venture fund, so they can get a return on their investment. It's typically a ten year period where they have to lock up their money. So, for example, if I gave you, I'm an LP, so it's usually like endowments. It's even sovereign wealth funds, it's uh, family offices. So, for example, let's take Mark Cuban. Mm, great. Everybody knows Mark Cuban, right? So, Mark Cuban is an active investor, but he probably, I mean, he's a billionaire. He probably has a family office too, right? So, you know, he wants to put more money to work. And so, venture capital is in this tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of like the asset class of private equity. Tiny sliver. So most of these people only invest like 2% of their entire pot of money into venture funds because it's a very risky asset class. There's actually more venture funds that are like show poor returns than good ones. Yeah. So that's why a lot of them go out of business. 
short-lived it is. cycle. Yeah, it's something we don't talk about a lot. That <laughs> there's actually sort of a high mortality rate. There in is. Venture. I think it's like sixty percent. It's high. Yeah. Yeah, sixty percent don't make it. So LPs are looking to find the right forty percent that are going to get the returns. What sort of returns are LPs looking for out of venture funds? You know, that's a good question. Like. There's a baseline. Probably like baseline is like I just want my money back, <laughs> right? Uh, it's kind of like investing in startups. Like the investors, the venture capitalists, they're like, you know, if I just get my money back, sometimes that's a good outcome. One x, two x, that's a mediocre outcome. Like three x is good, four and five x is great, and then everything above five x is just like, hey, it's stellar. Sure. So LPs looking for venture funds, they're going to get them the best bang for their buck. What are you looking for in your LPs? A long relationship in somebody that trusts trusts us to make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. Uh, you know, their network as well. It'd be great if they had an extended network. It's kind of like everything that you would want in a in a venture investor, right? You want them to. Be supportive and be there for you when the the going gets rough, and then you know be there to celebrate with you when things are great, and then to open up doors when you are in need of that introduction. You mentioned a handful of different flavors of LP: charitable foundations, family offices, mm-hmm. endowments, pension funds. Mm-hmm. How do you pick which of these groups to target? Well, ideally, you would want probably all of them, right? You would probably want to have an equal amount of all of them in your fund to have that balance. It's actually called fund construction. Fund construction. Yes. Tell me more about fund construction. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. It's like, you know, how many people you want? Say three family offices, three endowments, three pensions, and three sovereign wealths. Like you would want, you know, just a different. It's good to diversify in fund of funds as well. Why is that um, diversity important? What do you get from that? Well, for example, if you um, you know have a fund of funds, um, what happens if they're having trouble raising their next fund? So that could be you know a negative signal if they don't come in the second or third fund um, because you know they dropped out and you know it might scare other people away, or it just you know may make it harder. For whatever reason, to fill that position, that's one reason. Uh, that's let's see, sovereign wealth funds. Like you know, we've seen Greece and other countries in the EU kind of um, have this debt, and you know, sovereign wealth can disappear as well. You know, so it's just being smart and. Like diversifying, you know, they always say diversify your uh, investment portfolio. You want to diversify your 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 LP portfolio too. Sure. Okay. Uh, you said right? that. W- yeah. No, I'm, you're I'm, not seeing it, well, are you? You're like not convinced. <laughs> you know, when we talk about divers- diversifying an investment portfolio, mm-hmm. I can draw you a, a risk return curve and say, all right, you know, here's what. Here's the sort of returns I expect for this asset class. But I just did that for you. I was like, oh, this is why these different types of LPs are risky. So you're really just trying to mitigate risk. Yeah, exactly. You said that one of the things you're looking for is help from your LPs. 
That too. What sort of support do LPs provide to venture capitalists? Introductions to other LPs. <laughs> it's a net, it's a network effect. I know, right? It's kind of like venture capitalists. <laughs> venture capitalists, you know, hey, you've just led my round. Why don't you introduce me to your other VC friends to help me fill the round? Same thing. Got it. Isn't it funny? It's like it goes LPs, then VCs, then entrepreneur. It's kind of like I always compare it to, um, you know, the owner of like the San Francisco 49ers, and then you have the coaches, and then you have the players. So the LPs are like the owners of the football team, and then the venture capitalists are like the coaches, right? And then the players are the founders. I love it. I love it. We're going to make jerseys for all our founders. <laughs> uh, some any any learnings that you want to share about? VCLP relationship or how to raise a fund? Well, you just have to be patient. You have, these are, you know, your people are entrusting you with millions of dollars and they need to they need to trust you. So it takes a while. It is like an enterprise sales cycle. You know, it will take sometimes like these things take, you know, two, three, four years to actually solidify in terms of a relationship. Cool. Yeah, it's kind of like dating. <laughs> I hope not. I want to. I want to talk about the thing everyone's talking about. Why are you laughing? Because you have like a big smile on your face. <laughs> I'm just. I'm bracing myself for the ICO discussion. Oh I'm, no! I'm readying myself mentally and spiritually for a, a blockchain discussion. Oh. Well, I just. I feel sort of saturated on blockchain. To be honest, it's. It's been filling up my news feeds. All my friends are talking about it. And you just said you sort of head up the the blockchain investment arm of NFX. Is that a fair description? I am right now probably doing probably the most research, but I wouldn't call me the head. <laughs> the words trading desk were used. <laughs> Okay. Well, so so talk about that. Why is NFX interested in blockchain? Why do we care about this? I think that blockchain-like technologies seem to be becoming more and more popular in the way that we distribute applications and information and value. So every investor should be looking at this space, right? So there's been a tremendous amount of value that's happened on, you know, the alternative asset class of cryptocurrency or crypto assets. Like I can't even call it currencies anymore because, you know, there's assets there now. So when I was at Stellar, I remember like the Bitcoin market cap was at one billion, right? And that's like a, if you were to talk to an institution like Bank of America, you know, they move like one trillion dollars a day. So like a billion dollars is just a rounding error for them. So they were like, ha ha ha, like, you know, we're not, well, they weren't like ha ha ha. But, <laughs> but they were probably thinking, this will go away. This is a fad because it's just a rounding error to us. And now it's Bitcoin specifically is at 44 billion. The entire asset like crypto asset is at 100 billion. So it doesn't look like it's going to be going away anytime soon and it seems like it's just getting hotter and hotter. Sure. Why is this interesting for NFX? 
I mean, I'm assuming that if you wanted to, you could continue making traditional equity or debt-based investments and build a totally successful portfolio. So why crypto at all? Right. So I just want to clarify that like everybody on the NFX team is actually individually investing in this. So we're just testing to see if we would want to include it in our LP base, right? So we're actually playing with our own money before, you know, to make sure that we pick right and that we have the returns mm. um, that we need for future funds. Let's talk about different protocols. Sure. All right. So there are a lot of different protocols. There's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, there's Ripple, there's Stellar. And I think a lot of developers are trying to decide on what to focus on to build applications on top of. And I think that if you're thinking about building on top of these platforms, I would seriously look at all of them because I feel like a lot of people are rushing onto the blockchain. And I'll probably make a lot of people upset by saying this, but Blockchain is just, it's just slow and it's kind of like Friendster, you know. And then Ethereum is like MySpace. And then I think Stellar is actually going to be the winner and it's going to be the Facebook. And here's why. So let's just talk about protocols and transactions per second. So when I send a Bitcoin across the network, it takes 15 to 30 minutes to get six confirmations over the network to confirm the transaction. So 15 to 30 minutes. I mean, can you imagine like standing at the checkout line at your local Safeway and then trying to swipe your credit card and standing there for 15 to 30 minutes to 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 wait for that transaction complete. That's just, you know, it's a long time. It's just inefficient. So the transaction limit Per Bitcoin on the blockchain is six six transactions per second, right? So Ethereum, it takes slightly less time, maybe like ten minutes to confirm on the network. And Ethereum was just down today because there were so many people like trying to buy on it. So it was just like the whole network was locked up because it's built on top of the blockchain, an already efficient, inefficient protocol that was built over like fifteen years ago. Hold right. on, I, I I want to get some some clarifying <laughs> definitions on the table here. Okay, okay, you, okay. You used some words that I don't know we're all familiar with. You said um, there's a bunch of new protocols coming out, and developers are building applications on top of these protocols. That's right. What do you mean by protocol in this context? So protocol. So think of like SMTP. That's a protocol. Everybody knows that protocol. It's like what email runs off of. So nobody really talks about. SMTP, but they talk about Gmail, right? Gmail is the application that Google has built on top of SMTP. And it's like in real time, right? I send you an email and you get it in a couple seconds. Like that's how fast it should be. We shouldn't really be talking about the protocol. Protocol is just infrastructure um, that just needs to be fast. It needs to be, you know, the pipes underneath the building. That's what protocol needs to be or should be or is. That's what it is. Much like SMTP, the uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain-like technologies need to move as seamlessly as that. You know, think of how many people are on the SMT protocol. The entire world, even more people than Facebook, right? Sure. So you gave this great example of protocol. You said SMTP is a protocol uh, about how we sort of message each other across the internet. 
how we transform little lossy packets of information into mm-hmm. very reliable communication. That's right. And now people are not only building new protocols, but they're monetizing them. That's right. Tell me about how blockchain allows folks to monetize protocols. Blockchain-like technologies allow people to either issue their own currency or issue tokens that have value. And as of late, we've been seeing a lot of token sales in the market, specifically the Civic ICO and then also the Bancor ICO. Two that happened two weeks ago, they were they happened two weeks ago, and um, I participated in them. And there was a vastly different um, experience with each one. One ended up being great, a great experience. The other one not so great. And both of them haven't started uh, trading yet, so we'll see how they go. But you know, it, it was it was definitely a learning experience. Can you walk me through one of these ICOs? Yeah, so let's talk about Civic because I feel like they executed very well in terms of um, how they handle the ICO. So Civic is building a identity management network. For example, if you want to open up a bank account, people have to verify your identity. And their network would help you verify your identity for that bank. So a lot of banks have like KYC, which is know your customer compliance laws with the US government and also the anti-money laundering laws when you're opening up bank accounts. So KYC and AML, they will uh, be able to help you get those financial accounts open more quickly through a network. Cool. How do they make money off this? Well, they did a token sale for $33 million. They divvied up the total amount of tokens and they only put 33% of those tokens on sale to the public. So I guess that's why they did 33%. So 33% of the tokens were sold. 33% of the tokens were issued to the founders or the people who work at Civic. So that would be like their grant or their it would be similar to like an equity grant. Mm-hmm. And then the other 33% was for the community. So for example, in the developer community, you would have um, these hackathons and you would need prize money. So they would issue like the tokens as prize money. And then 1% went to all of the legal fees. So that's how they, they divvied it up. So if you release 33% and you cap it at $33 million, you know, if the value of the token goes up, then it's the value of your marketing budget goes up for all those hackathons. The value of your tokens that you issue to employees or the founders go up, and it's a liquid market. I've been looking at these token sales, and they have like $12 million a day of liquidity on them. Let's close the loop here. Step one, Civic writes a white paper describing this new protocol for identity management. That's right. Step two, they sell a bunch of tokens, they, they exchange tokens for other currency. They issue tokens and they get okay. money back. That's right. How do the tokens then feed back into identity management? What can I do with a token? So there's two different things. Like the token was just a way to to pay for things. Like it was an instrument to let everybody participate and to increase the value of the tokens for the people who held them and for the community. 
So it's two different things. That's a means of like raising funds versus like actually doing the the identity management. They're like two separate things. It's kind of like the blockchain and Bitcoin. Like the blockchain does its own thing because it's a protocol, and the Bitcoin is just a currency. So who is buying these tokens? You bought some. Speculators and investors. Hopefully I'm the latter. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, people in the cryptocurrency community. I mean, people who have made a lot of money in Ethereum and in Bitcoin and Litecoin and Ripple and Stellar, you know, they want to diversify and they're pouring their money into these these new assets. So what's the relationship between the civic token and the identity management protocol that they're building? Really nothing. Nothing. No. It's a token that increases or decreases in value and then the management system is a decentralized identity management system. They're two completely separate things. What pays for the running of the management system? The tokens. Okay, yeah, I think maybe I'm inappropriately or trying to lead or. the witness here. Um, <laughs> how do I exchange a token for some identity management? So there's third parties that verify your identity. They're probably rewarded with those tokens that do the work. Yeah. You know. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I'm wondering. I, I, I sort of wanted to draw the complete ecosystem of like paying for the work mm-hmm. and the tokens and the ICO. Yeah, they're they're funding the community with that 33% community budget. So like all of the people that complete the work in terms of identity verification, that goes to them. You know, very small f- fraction. Imagine it as if, hey, I'm a Bitcoin miner and I'm the one of the people that confirm that transaction. Same thing. And then, you know, just other marketing initiatives like hackathons and things like that. Cool. Content. Content and content. You wrote this great Medium article on why the Civic ICO was successful. ICO, initial coin offering, sale of these tokens. That's right. What were some of the characteristics that made this a well-executed ICO? Well, there are a number of things that Civic did to make it successful and kind of differentiated in the market. So one they wrote a white paper that everybody could understand. Like usually when you write a white paper, it's geared toward the developer community. And they kind of like to call that like a green paper. So a green paper that everybody could understand, including your mother, something that they would read and that they can understand. So making it accessible and readable to those audiences actually increases your audience size, therefore increases the people that want to be on your platform. So that was step number one. Step number two, they actually built a product first. That's different. Usually when you have a token sell, it's like, oh, I have an idea. This is my vision. They built the identity verification platform first. The first version of the product was similar to Facebook Connect. And people who are going to be participating in the the public crowd sale tomorrow actually have to download the app and use it to to purchase the tokens. So dog fooding, that's number three. <laughs> cool. Tammy, thank you so much for joining us. Before we go, any words of wisdom for folks beginning their career in venture, things you wish you knew going into this? I think that, you know, having a diverse background, operating background is like 
very invaluable to to founders and then your own sense of like picking what's good and what's bad. So basically not having the traditional like business school background isn't always necessary. Like operating companies is is really great as well. Cool. How can people find you? You can find me at Twitter at Tammy Camp or you can email me at Tammy at TammyCamp.com. Easy. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders. 